Hello everyone and welcome to the On The Trails podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Clark. I am a British ultramarathon runner, adventure seeker, dog mom, trail runner, and I'm here to bring you a podcast all about all of that. So running, trail running, adventure, overcoming obstacles, and just having a great time in the great outdoors. So this first episode is really gonna focus on overcoming obstacles. We're coming up to the eighth anniversary of my second heart surgery, and I'm gonna share a bit more about my story with you, the impact it had on me, and the impact it still has on me now, and the change in my perspective and outlook on life. You did hear that right, I did say second heart surgery, so how about we circle right back to the beginning and start from there. So my heart condition didn't actually present itself until I was 14 years old. So I was in a dance rehearsal, I grew up dancing, Um, I was in a dance rehearsal and I remember it was for this one particular show and I remember it very vividly, we had a prop that was a bar and it was like a musical, like a an in-house written musical and I was crouched behind this bar putting my tap shoes on because the next scene I needed tap shoes for and my heart started palpitating and at 14 years old that was scary and I didn't really know what it was so I remember coming out into the cafe area and sitting with my parents like a bit concerned because I knew that something wasn't right it wasn't just a racing heart because we'd been dancing for hours on end something was wrong and that's that's kind of where it started so I remember going for lots and lots of tests as as a teen and just being kind of turned away not believed sent on my way um because they just couldn't trace anything that was wrong and half the time by the time I'd actually got to the hospital for these tests my heart had gone back into its normal rhythm so it couldn't be traced without operating and they're not going to operate on someone for no good reason so what my heart would do we later understood was it would race at about 180 beats per minute all on its own I could be sat completely still watching the telly and it would just start palpitating I could be out doing anything I could be at work there was no real trigger for what would kick off the palpitations um but it was super fast super hard you'd see a pendant bouncing on my chest um because my heart was just beating so hard and sometimes these episodes would go on for about three hours at a time so as you can imagine 180 beats per minute racing that fast that hard for three hours at a time was exhausting i'd go really cold and it was almost like not enough blood was getting around my body and this went on for a long time a couple of times when my heart went back into its normal rhythm I passed out that happened at work once I used to work in a retail store and that happened on the shop floor luckily was literally out for seconds so it was okay but it was quite scary and each time I went to get tests there was nothing irregular about my heartbeat because it had gone back into its normal rhythm and so it just wasn't traceable so I was told at 14 15 years old that I was just making it up and you know I was a good kid I got good grades at school I switched schools because someone wouldn't move me back up to top set maths that kind of thing like I was good and there was no no good reason for me to be lying about my heart like obviously vital organ I'm, I'm not making this up something is wrong but I'm not being believed so then I just carried on being a teen and 
you know, this heart condition was doing its own thing and there was nothing really I could do about it. And I was really sporty. I played netball at school. I played hockey. I did every event possible on sports day. So my favourite events were the 800 metres, 1500 metres, the relay, either long jump or triple jump and high jump. So I would do as many things as possible on sports day. And I was probably about the only girl excited about cross country season every year. It was around this time in my teens that I realised I had sports induced asthma as well. So between an underlying heart condition and lungs that didn't really want to work as hard as I was asking them to work, it wasn't really a runner's recipe for success. Um, I did well, all things uh, considered, and I say that. I used to pass out across the finish line because I'd pushed myself so hard. I've got a pretty big scar on my left calf from where I passed out over the finish line once and my right foot tore open my left calf because I was wearing long grass spikes. And yeah, so I've got I've got a war wound to show for that um, where... You know, I was obviously overexerting on what my my body wanted me to be doing, and it just it just couldn't cope. So there's there is that, but I was doing I was doing well, all things considered. And I used to run the local 10k as soon as I turned 16, I think it was. So every May I would take on what was called the Gear Run, the Great East Anglian Run, and then I think it got changed to the Grand East Anglian Run, but it was still the same run, so I'm not quite sure. Um, but it was the local 10k and there's a pretty epic photo of me running in these like massive like I don't know who I thought it was a wag or something these massive sunglasses and I've got an inhaler in one hand I've got a stopwatch in the other back in the day when I didn't have a running watch and I would run with a stopwatch and I'm not quite sure why I didn't trust <laughs> why I didn't trust the chip timing but I've got a stopwatch in my hand and it's quite funny so and you can also see on that photo, I've shared it on my Instagram before, but on the photo, the chip timing, it looks like I'd been let out on house arrest or something. Like it's literally a band around my ankle with this huge thing on the side. And that was the chip timing. And I'm not quite sure why I didn't trust that that would give me the time uh, of my run. But there's a stopwatch in my hand and I'm not quite sure what I thought I would do with that data. But there we go, how times have changed from around 2007. So I would also pass out at the end of that race and I've got a photo of St John's Ambulance sat with me on the floor and there was a race, there was a year I didn't do it and then the following year the St John's Ambulance people were like, oh, we've been waiting for you, like waiting for that that crazy girl that comes over and passes out over the finish line each time. But it just kind of shows, doesn't it, that that's not, a normal way to react to just finishing a local 10k so something was really wrong and we just weren't getting to the bottom of it and I was just carrying on like normal just kind of dealing with it and not having any methods to either make it make the palpitations stop when they happened or sort of support myself because I hadn't been believed so we didn't know what it was so I just had no no coping mechanisms I just cracked on got on with it and and carried on and let's just you know skip through a few years everything carried on as it was and then I went to university and I went and studied dance and it was great 
I didn't really like the university life. Like, I didn't love all the partying. And in fact, in my third year, I think I went out once. But my course was fantastic. I was dancing for like 10 to 12 hours a day, contemporary dance. I was practically just rolling around on the floor for three years and doing handstands and lifts and all of this. It was genuinely the best time. And my heart condition was still doing its thing. And it got to the point where I was just a bit too much. And luckily I'd gone to the doctors for something else. And I leant over to get a magazine and my heart started palpitating in the waiting room. I was like, yes, this is it. So I was like, excuse me, read my notes. I really need an ECG right now. I need you to track my heart activity right this second. And they were really accommodating, they did. And it was on that day that we actually found out what was wrong, which is just incredible. And I was diagnosed with a condition called supraventricular tachycardia, so SVT for short. And basically the signal would come into my heart, there was an extra piece of tissue in there and it would just loop around before passing through. So I found out that it wasn't life-threatening, but it was obviously really inconvenient. So we should probably do something about it. So now that we knew what it was, I was presented with three options either take medication every day for the rest of my life to prevent these palpitations happening, carry medication every day to make the palpitations stop when they happened, or have surgery and, you know, hope that the palpitations would never happen again. Now, I was 20 years old, so for me, the idea of taking medication for, like, the next 60-plus years was just not an option. And I opted for the surgery. I, I thought about it for a bit, but I didn't have to think about it too long. It was a keyhole procedure through my leg up into my heart. And they told me that, you know, the risk was low. It was a routine procedure. And the chances were I'd have it once and be good for the rest of my life. And yeah, I weighed up. Weighed up the decision with my parents, like I say, for a bit, but it was it was a bit of a no-brainer, really. Because given that it was a low-risk procedure, it far outweighed the potential risks of taking these medications for like 60 years. So I went for the procedure. And it was funny because at the time, he also told me, you know, you shouldn't be riding bikes on the road. You shouldn't be sort of like running on the road, you shouldn't be having baths. All this stuff that, you know, it had taken seven years to get to this point from when my first... So I must have been 21, that was it. So it had taken seven years to get to this point from my first palpitation to actual diagnosis to be told all this stuff you shouldn't be doing, this is what it is, and... And obviously it had gone seven years undiagnosed, just carrying on. And I can't tell you how relieved I was for that final validation that there was actually something wrong with my heart, that somebody actually believed me there was data in front of us to support everything that I was saying for so long. And that we finally had, you know, a road to recovery, something, an outcome, a a plan of action to to make it stop, not my heart, the condition. So this was 
in my second year of university and I was obviously studying dance and it was it was time to have surgery so I had my first procedure it all happened really quite quickly from diagnosis to first procedure so I was in my second year I just finished for the summer and I had my first surgery the end of May 2012 so in between my second and third year doing a dance degree highly physical and I'm having a heart surgery in the summer holidays when everyone else is you know out out having fun with their pals so the procedure itself I won't talk too much about because it will gross some people out but I find it fascinating as anything so the procedure itself was called an SVT ablation so it was day surgery I went in in the morning and was out in the evening and it was quite funny because I was on the heart ward and I was the youngest probably by about 40 years and I was sat on the bed and they actually came and gave the gown to my mum because they assumed that she was the one having the surgery but she wasn't it was me even though I was sat on the bed um but anyway that's just a little bit that entertains me every time I think about the story and I remember going down into the theatre they were telling me about the, the surgery. So they were going to go in through the top of my leg, through my groin, up into my heart. Madness. Honestly, madness. Going to make a couple of small incisions up into my heart. And then what they had to do to begin with was try and trigger the faulty rhythm, the abnormal rhythm. So, um, so I was lying there, fully awake, with them kind of playing around with different, you know, electrical currents through my heart, trying to find this this rhythm that, that I'd been experiencing in these palpitations. And I had an x-ray machine over my chest so I could see a live x-ray of my heart with wires in it whilst I'm fully awake lying on the table. I felt like a bionic woman. This was the most fascinating thing I've ever seen, even still to this day. And... I don't think I'll ever get over the fact that I've seen a live x-ray of my heart with wires in. It's just mental. Anyway, so once they found the faulty rhythm, they they then basically gave me a mild sedative to drift off and then they burnt away the tissue that was causing the problem. And then I was out. I do remember waking up though from the surgery and feeling like there was an actual fire in my chest. I mean... They'd been burning away some of my heart tissue, but it actually felt like my chest was burning. So that was that was surgery number one. Came out and went home same day and I wasn't allowed to laugh because the incisions were so small in my in my leg that I didn't need stitches or anything, they were just closed themselves. And so like if I was to laugh or anything, I'd have to just like press down on them. So I just had to be careful not to, not to laugh too much. And I just took the rest of the summer to, to recover before I went in for my third year at university. And for my third year at uni, I was the dance captain of our dance company. I was in lots of numbers in the shows and everything. I was a strong dancer and it was up to me to kind of make sure that I was back up to strength and everything to go back to university in the September with like full range of motion and you know, fully recovered and and able to take on such a big year of my studies. 
and it wasn't until so we start in the it must have been the what September I'd I'd gone back to uni and they basically say once you've had this surgery if if you've gone three months without any palpitations then you can pretty much rest assured you're you're fine everything's good and the surgery's worked well I got to four months and I was in a rehearsal and my heart started palpitating and I remember just sinking to the floor and crying my eyes out now my tutor he'd had open heart surgery as a child and obviously massive procedure compared to mine but it's still something on on your heart and he fully understood and he comforted me really well and you know I just kind of carried on and I went for my checkup my post-op checkup in like the February this was in September I went for my post-op checkup in the February and you could just tell that the doctor was ready with his spiel to be like so glad you're great and I was like hmm not quite not quite so great so um told him what had happened and it's happened like a couple of times since and so we kind of weighed up the decisions again do i have the procedure for a second time do i just get on and manage it and just accept that this is this is it now and again I weighed up the decisions and for me I wanted to be a dancer I always knew I wanted to do something active so it it wasn't really an option for me if it didn't if it didn't have to be that way that's not how I wanted it so I opted to have the procedure for a second time but we just asked that you know could I be put on the waiting list but not not actually have it until I finish my third year of studies so they were really accommodating. Later, I realised they'd just forgotten to put me on the list altogether. <laughs> so it didn't interrupt my third year of study. I carried on. If the palpitations got too bad during a rehearsal, I would just sit out and watch. Um, so it was still impacting my studies. But then I graduated, got a first. Woohoo! Very happy about that. And also got um, like performer of the year, which was fantastic, all things considering. Um so super happy about that and then we're starting to get back into you know normal life that post postgrad life getting a job and all of that and then I realized it had been so long and I'd still not got a date through for the surgery so rang the hospital like I said just shortly uh, before they'd forgotten to put me on the list read through my notes realized that I should have been on the list put me on the list I had the surgery about three weeks later. It was mental, such a quick turnaround. Um, So I went in for the second procedure, same thing. But basically what had happened was the reason why my heart was palpitating again is because my scar tissue had just overgrown basically. So I get what's called keloid scars. So the scar tissue sits like outside of, like on top of my skin. And that's what had happened in my heart, basically. So what they had to do this time was burn away some of that scar tissue to to alleviate the the cause of the palpitations, basically. So Dana went into the surgery and they had to do the same thing again, find out what the rhythm was that was causing the problem, kind of where that signal was catching. And they were just struggling. 
struggling to get to that point and I was I remember lying on the table just like single tear falling from my eye um because I just couldn't have it be that I'm lying on that table and they don't find anything and then I'm back back where I was before and carrying on with life with these palpitations nurse was in there with me and she was holding my hand she was singing to me comforting me and she was honestly the sweetest and that just made me cry more because she was being so lovely and then finally after so much time they found the faulty rhythm and they could begin the actual procedure and then they did the thing burnt away the tissue and I found out when I woke up that they had to stop the procedure before they wanted to because if they'd have burnt any more tissue away they were getting so close to my natural pacemaker that I would have needed a pacemaker at the age of 21. So fortunately in them stopping when they did I have not experienced a single palpitation since that day and everything is fantastic everything is great no more passing out and no pacemaker or any more procedures. So I'm very, very happy and safe in the knowledge that I've now been declared with a normal working heart. I was told I don't need to declare it for anything. I don't need to get special insurance when I travel. Magical. And do you know what? Before the heart surgery, I had struggled for so many years with eating disorders, um, body dysmorphia, and it took so many years of happiness from me that after this surgery, it's it. I think it took a while for this to sink in, but basically now my outlook on life is, you know, I'm asking so much of my body and all it wants to do is fulfill those asks. It All it wants to do is everything that I'm asking it to do. So, so why, why am I spending so much time hating on what it looks like when all it wants to do is everything that I'm asking it to do and kind of serve me and take on all of these tasks? So, you know, this didn't happen overnight. I didn't just wake up one day and go, oh my God, like my body is fantastic. It took a while to get out of, you know, the the headset and the mindset and, you know, in those in those dark places. But I'm at a place now where all I do is thank my body. I'm so grateful for what it can do, what I'm asking it to do and it's fulfilling for me. Of course, I still have injuries. I still have... I've got a jaw that really, really doesn't like me. And I'm on now on year four of investigating and exploring that problem. But that's, you know, that's something else. But I think when you have surgery on a vital organ, it's, like I say, it doesn't happen overnight, but it does change your outlook. It changes your perspective. And certainly for me, all I want to do now is find out what I'm truly capable of. So that's what's really driven all of my adventures now, my ultra running. It's that, you know, I once had this this thing, this heart condition that was really stopping me doing things and really getting in the way of just normal, like daily life, that now that I don't have it, 
why am I not doing extraordinary things? Why am I not being extraordinary? So, so here I am running races like a hundred kilometers. And I'd taken a break from running when I was at uni and got back into it only just over a year ago. So it was the very, well, almost two years now, the very start of 2020, I got back into running as an activity to do with my dog. It wasn't even something that I was like, yeah, I'm going to go and be good at this. It was an activity to do with my dog to help burn some of her energy and something to do together. And then I got back into it and I was like, you know what? I'm actually still really good at this. Still really enjoy it. Let's, let's just keep doing this thing that we're now finding enjoyable again. And it was only a couple of months after I started running again that I decided I wanted to do something big. I wanted to raise some money for the British Heart Foundation. They'd previously covered my story on their blog. And so I was like, right, let's raise some money for the British Heart Foundation. I'm fortunate not to suffer from any any you know problems with my heart anymore but I know so many others aren't so fortunate so let's do something to help raise some money to help those people so I'm quite competitive I'm, I'm known to challenge myself and I decided let's not go for a marathon because that's what everyone does to raise money let's go straight for an ultra marathon so for anyone who doesn't know an ultra marathon is anything longer than a typical marathon distance. So anything over that 26.2 miles, 42.2K. And I went for a 50K. I was like, right, let's just do it. Up until that point, the longest I'd ever run as one continuous run was 12K. (laughs) So I had a long way to go. It wasn't something that I thought, you know, I could do. I had not even made it to a half marathon. And I'd got six months to train. And I was like, right we're doing it. If I'm going to gain enough traction for fundraising, I've got to do something extraordinary. I've got to do something that people will look at and actually see as a challenge for me. Because it's like, yeah, Charlotte, she'll just put, she'll put some mind to it. She'll do it. She'll accomplish it. So it needed to be something bigger than anything that people would expect of me. So I did it. I went and ran my first ultramarathon, September, 2020. And I love it. I love it so much. Are they painful? Absolutely. (laughs) And do you know what? I've spent so much of my life digging myself out of these, you know, dark places, struggling with mental health that I've got those tools under my belt, in my belt, whatever that phrase is. So a lot of an ultramarathon is mental your body can absolutely do it there's that quote isn't there your body can do it it's your mind you have to convince honestly so much of an ultramarathon is mental that your your legs will continue your body will carry you to that finish but you really do have to dig deep and get through some of these mental mental dark places where your mind is telling you, oh, this hurts, you shouldn't continue, no, you can't do this, you should just give up. And and sometimes much worse. And once you can dig yourself out of those places, you're unstoppable. So I've now done a 50K, a 53.5, I think it was. No, 55K. So I'd entered a 53K, it was a trail 53K, and I got to 53K, 
and the finish line was nowhere in sight. It was actually 55k long. And I remember crying at 53k, like, I've done what I was supposed to do. Where's my medal? Um, and my friend Maria, she, you know, helped me out. We were running it together. She got me to that finish line. We crossed the finish line hand in hand. And it was fantastic. But when you're expecting to run a certain distance and you get there and it's already a huge distance you've covered and find out you don't know how much further you've got to go is oh that's that's a hard place to dig yourself back out from so yeah i've done a 50k i've done a 55.3 i think it turned out to be i've done a 60k and then i've done a 100k so i did 100k in july and that is my favorite race to date it was with an organisation called Freedom Racing, who did very kindly gift me the spot to help celebrate a safe return to racing. So they gave me the space and honestly, it might be 40k longer than any race I'd done previous, but it was my favourite race to date. It was the most mentally strong I've ever felt in a run and my body carried me the entire way and I did it in a cracking time too. It was about 13 and a quarter hours, six female and honestly, all I've got is fond memories of that race, despite it being a hundred kilometers long. And even finishing that, I know I've not, I've not pushed my limits. I've not found that boundary. I'm still on the pursuit of finding what I'm truly capable of. And you know, next year I've got a hundred miles in the calendar, and who knows maybe it won't just be ultra running maybe it'll be a combination of adventure endurance events definitely not a triathlon though given that it wasn't allowed baths or to ride a bike on the road the idea of open water swimming and road cycling (laughs) terrifies me so a standard triathlon that will not be my sport of choice my race of choice but who knows, maybe there's different different things out there for me, but I really want to find kind of where that endurance limit is for me, kind of really push push my own boundaries, break my own barriers and really explore everything that I'm able to do. So that's kind of where it all happened. So I had my heart surgeries over the years since then, massive shift in mindset, massive shift in just even approach to life, my direction, kind of what I want to do, what I find is important. And it's it's not material things, it's it's moments, it's experiences, it's time with my dog, time with my partner, time with the people that I love and doing things that we love doing. So that's that's what's really special to me and what what I love. And you know, what I really love doing is encouraging people to to be active find joy in movement despite any obstacles any barriers you know we are we are all powerful we are all very capable of very different things and we should celebrate that no two people are the same and we're not put here to be average we're not here to be ordinary we're here to be extraordinary, do those extraordinary things. And once you realise that you are powerful, you are extraordinary, you can be extraordinary, you you can do these huge things that you've always wanted to do, that's when you're unstoppable. So what I urge you to do is go out and find that thing that you really love doing and do it at full force. 
If it's something that you can't do all the time, find as many times as possible that you can go and do that thing. One thing I always say is find your happy place, go there often. So this is your sign. Go find that happy place, go there often. You are powerful, you are extraordinary. Go and live that extraordinary life. So I'm going to wrap up this episode here because I could talk about this until your ears fall off, but I won't put you through that torture and we'll come back to this in another episode with some guests as well. So thank you so much for listening. It has been a pleasure being your host today, taking you through my heart journey, my heart story and my new outlook on on everything that I do and share this with anyone who you think needs to hear it, who needs to be given that prompt to lead an extraordinary life. And I just can't wait to be back for more episodes with a whole host of guests all sharing their stories with us as well. But in the meantime, you can catch me over on Instagram at charlotteclarkuk and I will see you next time.